Well, it's um, great to be with you all this Sunday and really thankful for the leaders of this church during this season of transition. Um, I've been able to zoom in on leadership council meetings and search team meetings and staff meetings, and I've been really encouraged by the folks who are, who are serving, um, which demonstrates that no church should rest on a few, but it really is a team and a family and a work of God, and so I'm really excited about that. Also very grateful for you, David, for this season, and uh, great to get to serve with you. We work together a lot, but we don't get to worship together a lot, so this is awesome. Um, everyone has to have a show these days. What's your show? Uh, some people say my show's Ted Lasso or those kinds of things. Um, my show really is the History Channel. My kids say you are so boring. Um, and, you know, occasionally with Angela Kay, I enjoy watching America's Got Talent. And I, I like it for several reasons. I always like to see what Simon will say. Um, wouldn't it be great to have Simon Cowell in the ordination processes of clergy, right? <laughs> Sorry, you'll get used to my sense of humor, hopefully. I appreciate all the acts, the singing, the dancing, the comedians, all the various ones, but I really like the magicians. And I like them because I'm always like, okay, what are they gonna do? I know it's not real, but I wanna see, do they wow us and pull, us off, pull this off? And they usually do, but after they do it, I'm constantly thinking, how did they do that? And then I start to Google ways that it was done or people who know about them and, and say it. And I think most people approach the miracles that we see in the Bible that way. Most average person that you'd talk to, they might think it's entertaining, it's fascinating, but surely the people who wrote these things, they didn't understand chemistry and biology and modern science. And that's the challenge, I think, of talking about the, the gospel in the modern day. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, a very smart man, describes the world of scripture as an enchanted worldview, a world where spirits and demons and, and the divine forces outside of the human condition and outside of the, the visible world are at work. And our modern world, consequently, Taylor calls a disenchanted world. The idea that it really depends on the material. And you know, these are sort of deep thoughts in the intro of a sermon, but I think that they show why in this day and age, when we have cell phones and technology and all the kinds of conveniences that modern science affords us, we are yet anxious, lonely, and disillusioned people. So we're going to hear today, as we heard in the gospel reading, that Jesus walked on water. So let's pray for our time in the word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that we can come to it and we can put the whole trust of our lives on what you say to us, especially in the words of Jesus, that in Christ, all of your promises to us are yes, and I pray that you would give us the faith, the kind of faith that can believe Jesus walked on the water is the faith that we need to live as Christians, believers today. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be our teacher this morning. 
and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So given these things, how do you come to this story today? Jesus walks on water. Yes, I believe it's true. Um, or I struggle with it. I want to believe it's true. Or even I want to want to believe it's true. Or I'm just not sure these things are true. I'm sitting here as a skeptic this morning. So I want us to see that of all of the miracles listed in the Bible and in the New Testament, only two of them appear in all four Gospels. In reverse chronology, the first miracle is the resurrection. So it comes towards the end of the Gospel. But all four Gospel accounts include the miracles of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and walking on water. So why in the world would all four gospel writers include these stories for us as readers? And I believe it's this. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and, and does so in a miraculous way, which was last week's gospel lesson if you're following the lectionary. And he does it to demonstrate his power at a lakeside cafe for 20,000 guests. Jesus created so much food that they had to take away the leftovers with 12 baskets, that people had their fill. And those who saw him firsthand do this saw his power on display. But he also has authority over creation. As the psalmist we heard read, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. God has authority over his creation, not only power, but authority and by walking on water and calming a storm that we heard, he demonstrates his lordship in the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm. So I hope in hearing today's gospel, your faith would grow as well. So I would say there's uh, several things that I want to highlight out of this gospel passage. First, I want to see the amazing power of Jesus. I hope you see his power and display and are amazed by it. Secondly, his sovereignty over all things. And lastly, I want you to get a grip, okay? So the amazing power of Jesus, his sovereignty over all things, and get a grip. And I love double entendres, get a grip, like get a clue or no, cling to Jesus in this life. So first, the amazing power of Jesus. Now, in our house, usually on Friday nights, when it's time for movie night, Angela Kay and I have diametrically opposed choices. So on one side, I think of the guy that says, let's get ready to rumble. You know, on one side of the corner is usually a uh, romantic comedy or a Kleenex necessary movie, uh, sad, good story, all that sort of thing. On the other side, things blow up, zombies might show up, Aliens aren't far-fetched either. So two different expectations of what we're going to do on Friday night. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and our work of great compromise and really working it out, give and take, we usually meet in the middle. And um, so, you know, how do you share power, in other words? And what do you do with power? And this is why we see in the section before today's reading, Jesus and how he uses power. John the Baptist was murdered by Herod, who was a coward and a tyrant, 
a power abuser. Consequently, Jesus, upon hearing this, takes his disciples away to the Sea of Galilee, and crowds follow him. In fact, uh, even after they follow him, and they get in a boat, today's lesson, and they move over, the crowds run around the lake and send people ahead. That's how amazing they find this person of Jesus. He feeds the people, and listen to John chapter 6, 15, which you heard read a couple weeks ago. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So at one level, the story starts with an awful power king, Herod. On another, upon seeing the power of Jesus, the, the crowds want to seize him and take him by force, using power to make him their king. Either way, we see the misuse of power. Yet Jesus shows us another way. He uses his power to heal. So immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, he sees the people, and his power motivates him towards compassion. Jesus, it says, when he sees the crowd, his heart is turned out for them. There's an author named Dane Ortland who wrote a book, Gentle and Lowly. I commend the book to you about Jesus' ministry. He says this, in, in the book, we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Jesus simply does not love like us. We love until we are betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. See, he sees the people who are lost sheep without a shepherd and he blesses them, even knowing that they would reject him. The most amazing quality of Jesus' love is that he can absolutely love his enemies and yet trust no one. Secondly, he uses his power to feed the people physically to demonstrate the true spiritual reality of his identity. Rather than let them go away, Jesus tells his disciples, because he already knew the miracle he was about to do, he tells them to feed him. He was testing them. And it's a poor young boy, because it says he brings barley and fishes. Barley would be the food of the poor. He takes the insufficiency and the scarce resources of humanity, and he feeds the people miraculously. Psalm 78, 18 says, they willfully put God to, te to the test by demanding food they craved. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and water gushed out, streams flowed abundantly, but can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? In other words, we might turn that phrase into saying it this way. Does God have the power 
to provide. See how he uses this power to heal, to feed. And then lastly, Jesus does not reject any usage of worldly power for his purposes. If he wanted to be king at that time, they would have gladly made so, made him so. And we certainly should be very weary of worldly power ourselves. Here he displays the sufficiency of his power. First the resurrection, and then the feeding of these 5,000. Which brings me to my second point in today's passage. Jesus' sovereignty over all things. He takes the disciples away quietly and just alone to demonstrate something more provocative than his power. So it's impressive enough, the feeding of the 5,000. But what Jesus is about to do is demonstrate more than just his power, his authority. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him, and he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went on a mountainside himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. I'm in safe company theologically to say this. The disciples who were firsthand and front, front row witnesses to Jesus breaking bread had to be amazed. And yet this second miracle that we hear about is even more convincing. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, how many of you have ever been sat in the Sea of Galilee? It's an amazing place to go see. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, the Mediterranean Sea, and surrounding it are mountains. And so if you are a person who's lived and made your living in the Sea of Galilee, especially as a fisherman, you know quickly what can happen in the blink of an eye is cold rushing wind can come over the mountainside, and when it drops into that sea level, it turns into a violent storm. I grew up in Oklahoma. I've actually been witness to five tornadoes in my life. Not, you know, I mean, they were a mile away or two miles away or, or close distance. And so this is something that even the fishermen know. When that sea turns turbulent, bad things happen. Ask any fisherman, they say it's not the rain you have to worry about. It's the wind because the wind caused the storms. So some of these very disciples who were fishermen, they knew the power of the storms and waves, and they had lived their whole lives doing this, and they're scared out of their wits. See, Jesus shows up in the raging waves and storms of our lives, just as he shows up in the raging storms of these disciples. Isaiah 43 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Jesus had waited until the boat was far from land as possible. Some say it was probably several miles off the coast. And when their hope was fleeting, and in essence, Jesus was testing the disciples' faith. And by testing them, he allowed everything that they could depend on for their own safety and their own sanity to be removed. So why did he walk on water? to show his disciples that the very thing they feared, the raging sea, was merely a, step, a set of steps for him to come to them. The most common 
imperative in all of the Bible is this. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious in anything, the Apostle Paul says. So Jesus comes out in the water and appears to these disciples to calm this storm and also to grow their faith. Which brings me to my last point this morning. Get a grip. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come down to the water. Come, Jesus says. Then Peter got down out of the boat. He walked on the water and he came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I think there's something really significant below the surface that happens in this exchange. Jesus says to to Peter, I mean, Peter says to Jesus, tell me to come down. What he's doing is he's giving Jesus permission, which he already had, to have authority over his life. Tell me to come down. And Jesus says one word, come. He says it in other ways, come and see. Come and follow me. Come to me, all who are weary. And upon hearing this one word, Peter goes for the walk of all walks. But something very interesting happens. Peter begins to sink because he looks at his circumstances. I I just want you to put yourself in this scene. Here's Peter starting to walk on water. Imagine what that would have felt like. Guys, watch, look what I'm doing. And then he probably looks around and he goes, look what I'm doing, I'm walking. This is crazy, this can't be true. I shouldn't be doing this. And he begins to sink. This is why the Apostle Paul says this, the opposite of faith is not unbelief. It's actually sight. The opposite of faith is not that we don't have faith. It's that we look at our circumstances and we see them with human eyes. He says this, Paul, we walk, pun intended for this gospel lesson today, we walk by faith, not by sight. Our faith does not rest on our ability to understand and comprehend and even get our circumstances. Our faith rests upon the one who can walk on water to us. This is why Peter cries out, I think one of the most beautiful expressions of the human condition and heart, save me, Lord, save me. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who cries out, Lord, save me, will never be put to shame. I think that's an important pastoral message to say to you this morning, for all of us to hear this. If you cry out to the Lord, save me, he comes and he meets you where you are. A few months ago, I was on a retreat and we were given this picture of Jesus and we were asked to contemplate it for an afternoon It's a very left-brain thing to do. I'm like, how long do we have to uh, contemplate it? This picture is Rembrandt's picture, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and I know you can't see it as well. I would commend you to consider it later. By the way, this 
picture was stolen in 1990 and still remains missing to this day. We only have copies of it. But it certainly made for great discussion. In reality, a group of about 20 pastors sitting around thinking about this picture and this passage, we came back and we sat and we shared stories. And what we realized is we're all going through storms. Teenage children in trouble, opposition in church leadership, marriage trouble, financial hardships, people caring for dying parents. We all sat there and we listened to the various storms of life. And we realized something crucial. We are all going through them. We don't have time, obviously, for the sake of this uh, place and space. But if you could come up here and say in the microphone, what's the storm of life you're going through? I think we'd all understand the significance of this passage. This is why I find it so remarkable. It says, immediately, Jesus reached out his hand to Peter and he caught him. Jesus simply reached out and he rescued Peter. Peter cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus comes through with his promises. Whoever cries out to the Lord will be saved. This is the gospel on display, friends. Again, our weakness and our frailty is the glory of God. I think this is why the gospel seems to move among people who are desperate and broken rather than those who have all that they need. And I'm not talking about economics. I mean people who are scared, who've been rowing all night and their own solutions to life or family or their problems just don't seem to be working. Perhaps they're at the end of the rope. Jesus didn't walk on water to show off. He walked on water to demonstrate both his power and his authority over everything. Back to my opening. If you don't believe that this is true, then you'll never be able to trust in a God who grabs you by his love. If you don't believe that he walked on water, it will be hard to trust him that when you're going through the storms of life and you cry out that he will grab you and take hold of you and rescue you by his love. I think of the transitions that we go through in seasons of life, the storms that arise, how tempting it is to solve things on our own scale, in our own ways, and miss Jesus' presence right there to save us. Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and saved. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.